If you are able to stand, please stand with me as we read God's Word from Mark chapter 16. Um, This will be up on the screen for you if you'd like to follow along there. If you want to turn in your Bible now, you can. Um, As we keep walking through the Gospel of Mark, we'll be reading from Mark 16, verses 1 through 8. This is the Word of the Lord. Uh, When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a man, a young man, sitting at the right side, dressed in white robe, a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where, he, where they laid him? But go and tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb. For, trim, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. This is the word of the Lord. God, as you can have a seat. And God, as we open your word, would you open our hearts to receive what you would have for us? Uh, we come before you humbly, needy, and desperate, and ask that you would have your way, that you would have your uh, will be done in our hearts, that you would bring our hearts in alignment with you, that you would help us to see uh, where our flesh still remains and where we need to surrender to the Spirit, that you would rescue and save this morning uh, some from their sin and bring them into your family as your beloved daughters and sons. So God, would you speak powerfully by your word and your spirit in our gathering this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, as we dive into this, let me ask you a question. When you think back over your life, maybe it's a long time, maybe it's a lot's happened, maybe when you're like, man, my life is so overwhelming, I don't even want to think about it, whatever the case may be. When you think back over your life, what are uh, some of the most significant moments when you think about it? When you think back over your life, what are some of the most monumental and significant moments in your life? When I think back over that, uh, there's a few things that come to my mind. There was a conversation that my dad and I had uh, the summer before my, I think it was the summer before my senior year of high school, uh, where he just sat down with me and just was very affirming uh, of me. Just spoke uh, very kind, uh, affirming, loving words into me. Uh, and that is a moment that I like cherish and hang on to, that my dad just leaned into, spoke, cared for, said some things that really just meant a lot to me. It's a, one of those look back moments on my life, uh, on me life, uh, like I'm Australian or something, I guess. Uh, <laughs> uh, the other thing, uh, another one is uh, in high school, uh, when I felt the Holy Spirit's words speaking to me, saying, uh, my will for you is that you would be vocationally as a job uh, a pastor in ministry and that was for in high school for me and uh, it changed the direction of what I was aiming and doing I didn't want to be a pastor at the time my dad was in ministry not because I didn't want to be a pastor because my dad was Uh, my dad showed me a very beautiful picture of what it looks like to sacrificially lovingly serve the church and I'm so grateful for that but I also wasn't wanting to do it (laughs) and uh, but God spoke very clearly into my heart and life and said no this is what I have for you not what you want to do. And that was a monumental shift moment. There was a moment I was actually recounting last night with a friend of mine, uh, the moment that I met my wife, Rachel. 
um, was a big monumental moment. Um, I may not have known in that moment on the tennis courts at our college that she was going to be my wife, but I few months later hoped it would be true. And so, but that was a monumental shifting moment in my life. There was a moment where I had plans to go to Colorado and do this big adventureful thing. And God said no very loudly and clearly through the kind, but also uncomfortable voice of my parents. Uh, and that really was very directing in my life. Um, uh, becoming a dad was a hugely monumental moment in my life where a lot of things shifted inside of me and ongoingly continue to have continued to. Um, so there's, there's monumental moments in your life. And may, I don't know what those are for you. Maybe uh, some came to your mind uh, as we just walked through that, or I shared some of mine. Um, maybe to zoom out just a little bit beyond yourself, uh, as you look over the course of history, what do you think some of the most monumental moments in history have been? Maybe uh, the ability to um, create or harness and utilize electricity. It's a pretty like life-changing, transforming moment in history. Uh, we're not dependent upon oils for light in the street or our homes or candles or, or fires any longer for just the fundamental being able to see at night, uh, much less all of the things that are in your pockets or in your life or in the parking lot or in your home that are dependent upon electricity. I don't know, the other may, maybe uh, uh, the Internet, it's a pretty monumental moment in history when the internet was created and set free, it feels like, to run havoc across our universe. Um, the internet's a pretty monumental moment. I saw a picture the other day of somebody that was like, hey, how we used to write papers, and they were laying on their bedroom floor with like encyclopedia books laying around them, and they're like literally writing. Uh, and now it's like scroll through your phone and find your research and copy-paste. Um, hopefully not like too much copy and paste, because that would be illegal. Um, but... Uh, uh, but there's, there was just a totally different way that we do school even now. Uh, like uh, so much of school gets done on computers and electronics. Uh, or maybe one like this. When you think about uh, the atomic bomb. When you think about when the atomic bomb uh, was dropped in Japan. It's a monumental moment in history where things changed. Like for a whole lot of people, but also just the way our world thinks and functions. I saw an interview the other day that um, this very prominent person in our world uh, said the United States could have in that moment taken over any country that they wanted to take over because they had a power that no one else had. If they wanted it, they could have had it. But um, God is the one who raises up and tears down, and he didn't let that happen, thankfully. <laughs> uh, but nonetheless, the atomic bomb is a monumentally shifting moment. So much that it shaped like decades of the way we lived in fear and what we did in our schools and hiding underneath doorways and under desks and like the Cold War and all these things. Uh, it, it, it was a monumental change moment. Um, uh, there's a lot of things that have happened over the course of history that have made big impacts and big shifts that we feel in our very lives in, in, today. But today, as we continue through the Gospel of Mark, um, I want to make the argument to you um, that the resurrection of Jesus changes everything. That there's no more monumentally changing and impactful event in all of history than the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And so, so let's look at this. Uh, we'll walk through this and then unpack some of the ways and specifically why the resurrection of Jesus changes everything. Why the resurrection of Jesus is this moment uh, in history where 
more impact resonates out from it than any other thing that has ever happened in human history, in the, uh, the history of the universe. So look what means we walk through the story in Mark 16, verse 1. It says, uh, on the Sabbath, or when the Sabbath had, was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll the stone away from, for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had already been rolled back, and it was very large. And so as the story begins to unfold, catch us up a little bit, Jesus was crucified and died on Friday afternoon. That he was nailed to the cross on Friday morning about 9 a.m. He dies, breathes his last at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Joseph of Arimathea, uh, one of the people who was a part of the Sanhedrin, goes and asks Pilate for Jesus' body. He grants it to him. Joseph uses a tomb that was most likely his, uh, never been used before. And he goes and puts the body of Jesus in that tomb, likely in a garden, in the garden area, not too far from Golgotha. And Jesus is buried, wrapped in a shroud that... Joseph bought himself for Jesus. Uh, and, and so a tomb, to kind of give us a picture of this, uh, is not this gargantuan like, thing that we think of or see oftentimes in plays and whatnot. It's like a cave carved out of the side of the mountain. And so think smaller entrance cave that inside of would have like a ledge where the body would be laid upon. Like I shared with you last week, if you were here, uh, they would uh, lay the body in there, the body would decay, and, and then it would, it's, the bones or remains would be removed from it so the tomb could be reused again. And so Jesus' body is wrapped in the shroud and laid upon the ledge inside of this tomb that's cut out of the side of the rock. Uh, and these women that enter the story here, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph and Salome, aren't new into the scene or picture. If we look back, they were witnesses of the crucifixion. Mark tells us that they stood far off watching Jesus be crucified, and not only saw him die, heard the words that he said, saw the centurion proclaim him as the Son of God, saw Joseph come get his body, but they also went with Joseph to the tomb and saw Jesus' body put into it. So these women aren't new to the story. They aren't random people who show up. They're familiar with where Jesus died. They went and saw where he was buried, and it's now Sunday. He dies on Friday. Saturday is the Sabbath for the Jews. They don't worship. They don't work. They don't do anything. They rest. Um, and then on Sunday morning, these ladies rise up early in the morning to go back to the tomb where Jesus was buried. And so what do they go back there to do? It's early Sunday morning. They go and buy some spices from the village or market. The sun's rising at this point in the day. Uh, and they go to anoint the body of Jesus with these spices. Now, this is a customary practice, and uh, to clarify for us, like, what, what exactly is, are they doing here? Uh, the, the spices and the customary practice of anointing a dead corpse was not preservation. Putting the spices on the body of Jesus wasn't to try and keep his body from decaying slower of any kind. Uh, it was 100% a complete act of respect and to show their devotion to the person who had died. It was an act of devotion and love to the person who had died. Showing your love for them. It had nothing to do with the body not dying or decaying faster. It was just an act of devotion. And so these women are displaying their continued devotion to Jesus as 
as their Savior, as their Lord, as the one whom they followed by going early in the morning, at the earliest hour they could possibly have gone to the tomb to put these spices upon his body as a pure act of displaying and showing their love and devotion to him. So as they approach the tomb, uh, they ask each other a question. Hey, when we get there, how are we going to open it? How are we even going to get in? How are we going to open the tomb? Because uh, the, on Friday evening, the religious leaders, they knew that Jesus had prophesied and told them that he was going to come back from the dead. Now, Jesus had that, uh, it was a very public thing that he made a decree or, or, or proclamation that he would be. And so the religious leaders go to Pilate and say, hey, uh, can we put a stone in front of the tomb, a very large one, and put guards in front of the tomb so that his disciples don't come and steal the body? And so when they come to the tomb, they're anticipating to see a stone in the doorway. Possibly still guards there guarding the tomb to make sure that Jesus' body doesn't get stolen. And what that reveals to us is this. These women fully expected to find Jesus' dead body. They went prepared to in loving devotion with spices to honor and show their devotion to Jesus by preparing his body. But they 100% believed when they got there, they would find his dead corpse. If they thought he was going to be alive, they wouldn't have gotten went and bought spices. If they thought he was going to be alive, they wouldn't have asked the question, how are we going to roll the stone away? So they were... 100% expecting to find the dead corpse of Jesus. But as they approach the tomb and they go inside, they see something. Verse 5 tells us, In entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. That what they expected to see was the dead body of Jesus. Even as they see the stone rolled away, they may be like, oh no, what's going on? This is supposed to not be rolled away. Uh, did somebody get here before us? Like, what's happening? And so, so they go in and they don't see the dead body of Jesus, which they expected to see. They see a young man in a white robe sitting to the right side of where Jesus' body would be. And in that moment, they are alarmed. And the word alarmed here doesn't mean like, oh boy. Uh, it, it means that they had... Over, been overcome by fear and distressed at the sight that they had seen. That they were overcome by fear and distressed by what they had seen. Which, when we think about this, uh, what's this the young man in the, in the, in the white robe, uh, what is it? Uh, it's an angel. We know this because the other Gospels fill in the gaps with Mark. Uh, and we know that there's an angel in the tomb when Jesus comes in, or when they come in and see him. And don't see him. And we also know the reason that they have fear or overcome with distress at this sight is because, one, uh, that's a very normal response when you see an angel. When we look through and read through the Bible, the normal reaction and response when human beings see angelic spiritual beings is terror. That's what their response is. And so uh, we know this when, when the angel shows up to Mary. We know this when the angel shows up to Joseph. We, we see this. Like The reaction is terror, fear, overcoming distress because it's an angel. But the second reason they probably find themselves alarmed or distressed is because what they expected to see is not what they saw. 
What they expected to see was the dead body of Jesus, but instead they see someone alive, very alive. And this person looks out of this world. So what they expected to see was not what they saw. The third reason is because there very well likely would have been in that moment uh, distressed worries, anxieties rising up inside of them of going, okay, where is Jesus? This one whom they love enough that they would take their Sunday morning, rising early, spend their money on these spices, and come to do an act of pure devotion to him. So they were probably worried, taken back, asking questions in their minds of, who took the body? Where is it? Where is the body of my Lord? Which Mary, or Mary Magdalene echoes later. So they're overcome with distress. And the angel speaks to them in verse 6. And he, the angel, said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? And so the angel speaks to these women. And the first words out of angels' mouths almost every single time is, Don't be afraid. Don't be alarmed. Why? Because this angel brings good news. Not bad news. This angel's not about to like, drop some like, tragic news on these, on these ladies. He has nothing but good news to share with them. And so, uh, don't be alarmed. I know I'm apparently terrified looking, even though I was just a young man in white clothes. Uh, uh, and don't be alarmed, because it doesn't look like what you expected to see. Uh, don't be alarmed about where Jesus' body is now, uh, because I have good news for you. You came to find Jesus in the tomb dead because he was crucified and buried here. But he has risen from the dead. He's not here. Look, you know where they put him. He's not here. And then these words of comfort are meant to be good news and comforting words come with some instruction. He tells these women, Go, tell the disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And so the angel gives them instructions. Don't be alarmed. Don't be afraid. Good news, Jesus is alive. Just like he said he was going to be. So go from here and tell. Go from here and tell his disciples and Peter. Which might be a little like, why did Peter get like, singled out here? Why not like, go tell the disciples and John. Well, I mean, what happened with Peter in the story just a few days before? Peter publicly denied Jesus, denied knowing him. And so they not only bring good news to the disciples who didn't deny Jesus, they go and bring good news to the one who proclaimed publicly, I know nothing of this man, that he is coming, he is alive, and he wants to see you, Peter. And so they leave. And in their astonished, shock-filled awe as they leave the tomb, they don't tell anybody as they run by, they just go straight to the disciples. They didn't talk to anybody, they just go straight to the disciples. We know that because the other Gospels fill in the gaps. So when it says here uh, that they left the tomb, and when they left, 
they said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Uh, I think what most likely that's actually referring to is that they didn't like turn around and go like, hey, everybody, look, hey, Jesus is alive, Jesus is alive. They just went straight to, they were terrified, overcome by the distress of this entire experience. What they expected to see was not what they expected or what they saw, and they go straight to the disciples. And we know that because the other gospels fill in the gaps and tell us they go straight to the disciples. Uh, but additionally to that, we'll see a little bit next week and expand it if you want to go read later, John 20, verses 11 through 18. Uh, we see that Mary Magdalene is particularly distressed by the situation, probably overcome by shock that she turns around and she actually doesn't leave very quickly. She lingers somewhere near and in the garden and Jesus himself reveals himself to her first, that she's the first person whom Jesus physically resurrected Jesus reveals himself resurrected to. So Jesus, who was crucified, who was buried in this tomb, is not dead. He's risen from the dead. And the angels make this news known. These women hear the news and they go and tell. So what evidence is there here uh, that Jesus actually was dead and resurrected? There's some stuff in here that I'm not going to get too far into that show up in the literary structure of the Bible as evidences that this is not made up, that they actually, he was actually resurrected from the dead. Um, there's a few different things that I do want to share with you, though. One, um, we'll lean into this in a little bit more uh, in, in a few minutes. Uh, the, what are the disciples of Jesus doing when all this takes place? You may know, you may not know. If you don't know, I'll fill in the gaps. They're hiding. They're hiding. They're terrified. The guy they've been following as their teacher, who they've been seeking after, they have run away from and are terrified that the same thing that happened again to him is going to happen to them. And so they're terrified. They're in fear and hiding. So much that we find out they're hiding in a house and the doors are locked because they don't want anybody to know that they're there or be able to get inside. The disciples are fear-stricken cowards at this point in the story. But when news comes that Jesus has risen from the dead, there's a moment of disbelief, but when they see him for themselves, they are radically transformed. Radically transformed. The way in which the disciples of Jesus act after Jesus' resurrection is... Uh, uh, a evidence that Jesus was alive because they acted and lived to totally different. Another one here, um, uh, the Jews did not take the body of Jesus. How do we know that? Because when this new thing, Christianity, starts to rise, why not just show Jesus' body? But they couldn't. The easy thing for them to squash this new uh, movement of the people who practice the way of Jesus, who their whole gospel is that he resurrected from the dead. If they want to squash it, all they have to do is say, hey, no, he didn't rise from the dead. Here's his body. We went and stole it in the middle of the night. But they didn't and couldn't. Another evidence of this, in, in 1 Corinthians 15, 1-11, Paul telling in the letter to the church at Corinth, uh, he says, Jesus, this is the gospel, Jesus died for our sins, was buried and rose from the dead, and that he appeared to more than 500 people at one time. There were over 500 people who visibly saw the resurrected Jesus alive. 
And, and to, to be clear, that's plenty of eyewitness accounts to pretty much prove anything. 500 people saying this happened, I saw it with my own eyes, is evidence enough in any court of law, in any argument, in any situation to say that's actually what happened. And so Paul writes that letter to them. And in Paul's letter to the church at Corinth, uh, he begins to unpack for us a little bit more of the significance of this moment in history. He begins to unpack for us that this isn't just a historical moment where we're like, yeah, I believe in Jesus, he died and rose from the dead. Uh, this is much more than just a historical event. This moment right here, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, changes everything. And so let me unpack for us a little bit of how. Uh, if you have your Bibles and want to flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we're going to hang out there for a few minutes. Uh, we'll start in verse 14. It'll also be up on the screen for you if you want to uh, get there with me. Um, uh, there is no more impactful moment in all of history than this. There's a lot of things that have happened. There's a lot of things that have changed the way that we live our lives. Uh, nobody's riding horses to each other's houses for dinner anymore. Uh, we have cars. Uh, when you want to know what's happening on the other side of the world... You don't have to write a letter and wait a year for the next boat to bring a letter back. You can flip over your phone and actually talk to somebody on the other side of the world or read an article about something. There's a lot of things that have impacted the way that we live our lives. Think about medical discoveries and advancements. People live longer now a day than they ever have before because of medical research and discoveries. Think about the impact of penicillin. Understanding that this thing, this this growth can actually treat bacterial infection and prevent death. A lot of things have impacted our lives in very deep and very impactful ways. Some for the better, some for the not. But none of them has more power to impact both your life now and your life forever after you die. See, penicillin isn't going to make you live eternally. Uh, technological advance to understand what's happening outside of your own little moment isn't going to impact anything but your life right now. And probably not more for the better than it actually is for the worse. There's nothing in all of history that has the impact in your life now and in your entire eternity than the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And, and Paul impacts this for us in this way. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 14 says this, And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testify about God that He raised Christ when He did not raise Him, if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the, if the dead are not raised... Not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still, listen to these words, you are still in your sins. Those who also had fallen asleep, meaning died, in Christ, having believed in His resurrection, have perished. And if Christ, if in Christ we have hope in this life, only, we are of all people most to be pitied. As Paul unpacks the significance of the resurrection, this, this moment in history we just walked through in the Gospel of Mark, he says these things. The whole of your faith as a Christian rests in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 
The whole of your faith, the gospel in itself, rest wholly and completely in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, there's no hope after your death that you also will rise from the dead and you are still in your sins, which, which the idea of you still being in your sins ought to be a terrifying possibility. Because if you are in your sin, you are under the full righteous judgment and wrath of God. And if Christ didn't rise from the dead, there is no hope for any of us. No hope. Because if Christ doesn't rise from the dead, then you still possess your sin. He didn't take it for you and from you and defeat it on the cross. So much that he uses this word a few different times. That it's all vain, nothing, worthless. That we ought to be pitied by the world as having a false hope that when you die, you'll, be, you'll have eternal life. So much that he says, if Jesus doesn't rise from the dead, if he didn't rise from the dead, nothing matters. There's no hope for us. There's no salvation you cannot be saved from the wrath of God and judgment towards your sin if the resurrection didn't happen. But, verse 20 says this, but, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep for as by man came death, by a man, Jesus, has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all died, so as in Christ shall all be made alive. See, Jesus did die on the cross. He was buried in Joseph's tomb, and he was resurrected from the grave by the power of God. And in that rest our full hope in life and in death. So much that Paul unpacks for us this reality. The resurrection of Jesus reverses the curse of sin and its consequences. That when Adam and Eve in the garden in chapter 3 disobeyed God and ate the fruit of the tree, they bring upon them and all of the rest of the world the curse of sin and its consequence, which is death. And Paul tells us here that Jesus' resurrection makes possible the reverse of the curse of sin that rests upon every single child of Adam. Which means you can no longer bear your sin and Christ will bear it for you. That you can have the curse of sin lifted off of you and have not its consequence death, but the reward of righteousness, eternal life. But only if Christ has resurrected from the dead. That we can be made alive now and forever, by faith in the resurrection of Jesus. Because Jesus' resurrection undoes all that sin did in the garden and in you. That the resurrection of Jesus makes hopeless people into hope-filled people. Which leads us into two different aspects of, of what do we do with this. That nothing else in all of history, no moment in history, has had the impact that Jesus' resurrection does. You can do anything you want to try, 
But nothing that has ever happened has had the ability to reverse the curse of sin that took place in the garden that rules and reigns in the hearts of every single child of Adam. Nothing has impacted or changed that except for the resurrection of Jesus. And nothing but the resurrection of Jesus transcends all of those things. Like, uh, Jesus' resurrection not only brings resolution to the curse of sin, but transformation from it and the reconciliation and restoration of all of it in you and in, in the eternal restoration of all that sin has broken. The response for us then is this. Do you believe the gospel? Do you believe that Jesus died on the cross to pay for your sins? Do you believe that he was buried in Joseph's tomb? Do you believe that on the third day when the women went, they found a resurrected empty tomb because Jesus was alive? Do you believe that Jesus rose from the dead so that you might have eternal life? If not, my hope for you is this that you would, because just like Paul said, if Christ doesn't resurrect from the dead, we have no hope. The reality is, if Jesus did rise from the dead, which he did, there is no hope outside of him. There is no hope for you to escape the wrath of God towards your sin, which is just and right, apart from faith in the resurrected Jesus. So believe the gospel today. The second part of this is for us is this. How do we do what Paul says in Philippians? How do we know the power of his, his resurrection? What, what, what power, what impact should the resurrection have in our lives as Christians? Well, we've heard this story. If you've gone to church on an Easter in your life, you've probably heard this story. That's like, this is the Easter passage. The resurrection of Jesus. Why? Because it's the most impactful, significant moment in all of history. But how should the resurrection affect beyond your salvation? It's, it's, it's changed your eternity, but it also changes now. Uh, think about this. I, I mentioned this earlier. If you're familiar with, I encourage you to read, uh, go read the, the book of Acts. Because the book of Acts shows a transformed disciples. It shows the, the disciples of Jesus on mission to declare the gospel of Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit across the world. And these are the cowards that are hiding in the upper room. And so, so these guys and women and those who follow Jesus, not just the twelve, the impact of the resurrection of Jesus made cowards into courageous disciples. Made fear-driven cowards hiding into courageous Disciples of Jesus who were, by the looks of it, had been so radically transformed by the resurrection of Jesus that they weren't afraid of anything. They weren't afraid of anything. And I'm afraid that for us, there's often this, this reality that we have a, a pretty shallow comprehension, and I don't just mean mental, uh, understanding in our hearts of the impact of the resurrection uh, that, that pales in comparison to the impact that we see in the disciples. That they weren't afraid of anything. They stood before men who had the power to literally kill them. And they were unmoved with courage and confidence. That they said things like, no, we're not going to stop preaching that Jesus rose from the dead. We can only speak of what we have heard and seen. Shall we obey God or shall we obey man? Decide for yourselves, we're going to obey God. And keep preaching the gospel of Jesus resurrected from the dead. They were filled with hope. 
hope that lifted their eyes beyond the current circumstances of their lives to see farther down the road than what they're facing today and their possessions or lack thereof, to suffer for the sake of the gospel, to see past their accomplishments, successes, hobbies, their careers, whatever they may be, and to see an eternity that was worth living for that the resurrection of Jesus provided for them, that the power of the resurrection provided them a courage and confidence through whatever life circumstances they faced. Because the resurrection enabled them to lift their eyes beyond their circumstances and see the end of the story, which gave them a courage and confidence beyond their circumstances. And, And additionally, the resurrection of Jesus transformed these men in such a way it gave them a purpose to live for that transcended their own in like once wills desires in life a purpose that impacted uh, their lives in such a way that they lived on mission with the one thing in mind that other people would believe in the resurrection of their savior and lord jesus and they radically lived that way they radically lived that way. So I want us to consider this in two ways. One, uh, the impact of the resurrection in you on mission. And if we see the resurrection impact the disciples in such a way that they move with confidence and courage on mission to make disciples, it begs the question, asks the question, has the resurrection of Jesus from the dead had that same kind of impact in my life? Has the resurrection of Jesus from the dead had the same impact in my life that we see it have in the disciples? And if not, ask the question, why? Why? Uh, We don't seem to, in most of our lives, live with the same abandonment, surrender, and confidence in the Holy Spirit to live... uh, Selfish or selfless lives on mission for Jesus, like they did. And do we take for granted the resurrection of the dead? To where we know that Jesus has rescued and saved us, that our eternity is secured by his resurrection, and then we turn our eyes down to the stuff and the circumstances in our lives. Uh, has, has Satan dangled the shiny things of life, our success, our accomplishment, material possessions, experiences, fantasies that we see on other people's social media, all these things dangling in front of us, blocking our ability to see the confidence and courage we should have on mission because of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. They were too easily distracted. My hope and prayer for us as a church is that we would be overcome, and like Paul says, we'll read in a minute, that we would know Christ and the power of His resurrection the way the disciples of Jesus knew Christ and the power of His resurrection and the impact and transformation that it made in their every single day lives. Specifically and primarily first on mission. That they knew that the only hope that they had was in the resurrection of Jesus. And when they turned and looked at their neighbors, they knew the only hope their neighbors had was in the resurrection of Jesus. And they weren't content to sit and hold the resurrection of Jesus for themselves. 
and they boldly, powered by the Holy Spirit, were moved and impacted by the resurrection on mission. My encouragement, I grabbed these out of the box because we've had them in there for a long time. Uh, in every other or so chair in our room this morning is this little card right here. Uh, and I, it's just maybe a helpful tool for you today. A helpful tool for you to go, who's my neighbor? Who's my neighbor who does not have hope beyond their current life circumstances and this life? And to maybe write their name down and to commit to pray, to move towards them, and to share the gospel, the hope that you have in the resurrection of Jesus with them. I mean, I, I know, uh, I know there's someone in every one of our lives. I know there is. There's a guy named Zach that comes to my mind. He's helping with our baseball team. He's asked me to pray for his son who's got cerebral palsy, his neighbor that had this crisis moment go on. He's had the like, hey, we haven't been to church in a long time, probably since I was in the Marines. Um, he knows I'm a pastor. That's his like lead in. Hey, I know you're a pastor. Will you pray for this? Like kind of thing. Uh, that's who's on my mind and heart. That Zach, his wife, his sons would have hope in the resurrection of Jesus for their eternal life. And that I would be so moved and transformed by the power of the resurrection that I couldn't keep it inside. Like the disciples couldn't keep it inside. So maybe the next step for you is that. And maybe it's this side of it. The impact of the resurrection of Jesus uh, that yes, moves us on mission, but also gives us confidence and courage in our suffering. Philippians 3, 8 through 11 says it this way. This is Paul, and just to clarify, Paul's not like chilling on a beach in the Bahamas when he writes Philippians. He's in shackles in prison. He says in Philippians 3, 8, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Man, if that statement would just sink into our souls. That Jesus is worth that much. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Look at verse 10. That I may know Him and the power of His resurrection, and may share in His sufferings, becoming like Him in death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. You see, Paul had confidence, courage, comfort, and security in whatever circumstance he faced in life. Not because he could figure out his problems. Not because he had extra money to throw on the fires that he had burning around him. Not because he had a counselor. Not because he had anything going on in life. The, the, the anchor of his hope and courage and confidence and suffering and sorrow in the circumstances of his life went beyond this life. It's this truth, this this Jesus has me. 
I'm going to be okay. Now, we fall oftentimes into this pitfall of going, Jesus, you got my eternal life. I'll take care of my current life. Jesus, you got my eternal life. I'll take care of the things I'm facing today. I don't want to burden you with that. I don't want to be needy and ask for help. I'll ask other people for help. Which leans us into this question, is the confidence, courage that you need to face life's challenge based upon the suffer, in the sufferings that we face, based upon your current circumstances, how, you, how you're doing, what's going on? Is the confidence and courage that you have in your suffering based upon the things that you can manipulate or change? Or the, is your hope in that because of something here and now? Paul's confidence and courage before suffering, in suffering, was not in this life, but beyond it. Because here's the reality, and Paul's echoing this throughout this whole, this whole passage. If you are in Christ, listen, it only gets better for you. That if you are in Christ and you're in seasons of suffering, circumstances that are overwhelming and seem insurmountable, this truth still remains. Because of the resurrection from Jesus, of Jesus from the dead, you, it only gets better for you. It only gets better for those who are in Christ. And the resurrection of the Jesus from the dead enables us, knowing His resurrection, enables us to lift our eyes off of the things happening around us, to, to lift our eyes, to no longer be short-sighted by instant gratification and a microwave view of the circumstances around us. God, fix this right now, or I'm, I don't know what's going to happen. No, look beyond it. If God had the power to resurrect Jesus from the dead, He has the power and love for you to restore anything that's broken in your life. That the courage and confidence that we need in the midst of life's circumstances and suffering comes from the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. the most, most impactful moment in all of history. Isn't the internet the most impactful moment in your life? Wasn't when you became a parent. The most impactful moment in all of history was when Jesus rose from the dead. Because everything hinges upon the resurrection of Jesus in your place. So do you believe in the resurrection? If you have, all of your life should be daily impacted by the confidence and courage to live fearless lives because of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and your resurrection ahead of you. We invite the worship team to come up. And we're going to sing in response. We're going to sing to our God and praise Him for the resurrection that we have ahead of us. 
And as we sing, maybe these words are words that you need to sing. Maybe they're words that you can't sing today for some reason. There's just something going on in you that you would just hear the rest of our church sing over you these things. We would respond to Jesus. My hope is that maybe for you there's a moment today of, I want to experience the transforming impact of the resurrection of Jesus in my heart and life. Beyond my salvation, into every single nook and cranny of my life. To have the boldness and confidence in my circumstances and on mission. So let me pray for us and we'll respond. Father, we praise you for resurrecting Jesus from the dead and securing our eternal life. Thank you, Father, that because he rose from the dead, by faith in him, we are not in our sin anymore. that you have made us righteous, that you have made us your sons and daughters. So Father, we ask now that you would help the the reality of the resurrection and its impact to sink deeper into the depths of our hearts. That it wouldn't just be the biggest and most impactful moment in history, but it would be the biggest and most impactful moment in every moment of our lives. That we would look to the resurrection for the strength to face each day. For the courage to obey you on mission. So Jesus, would you move in our hearts now? Have your way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.